Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. You know, the current housing uh, crises that we see in our city and other cities not only cause real-world problems for people trying to put a roof over their heads, but they strip the culture and the uh, what makes a city interesting away from itself. And, you know, if you're within the sound of my voice... That must mean you're in the seats with once more. As always, my name is Dave Voigt, and I'm the host of this podcast, where we sit down with a wide-ranging variety of entertainment industry professionals, and we pick their brain about current projects, state of the industry, how they got started, and so very much more, in a light and in a conversational fashion. And you know, if you like how we do things around here, I'm going to go on a limb and assume that you do, because uh, quite frankly, you're listening right now. Uh, And if you are, uh, subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a little five-star rating. On your podcast provider of choice, we're available pretty much everywhere. Places like Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google. And plus, we archive every single one of our episodes over at our In The Seats YouTube channel. So if you can give us a like and subscribe there as well, we'd absolutely appreciate it. Also, don't hesitate to check us out on social media. We're on the Facebook, we're on the Twitter, we're on the Instagram, we're on the Letterboxd, we're on the TikTok. And God knows we're probably on a few other places too. At In The Seats, for all sorts of fun updates. But finally... And I do dare say, most importantly, please pay us a visit over at In The Seats, intheseats.ca, for all the latest and greatest from the world of film, television, basically the moving image at large, because guess what? If we love to watch it and write about it and talk about it, we love it when you come by and read about it and listen about it. So do us that kindness and pay us a visit. On this episode, we got another good documentary it is available now on demand on tvo.org yet another one squeezed out by our fantastic system here in canada uh and it's from a fantastic documentarian if i don't if i do say so myself mr jimmy kastner we have talked to him before about his various other films like there are no fakes uh secret disco revolution and so on and so and skyjacker's tale and so on and so forth uh, this one is called Charlotte's, uh, Charlotte's Castle, and it's uh, a story of just the skyrocketing, you know, the skyrocketing, uh, you know, rates of housing and how much things cost and, and, and how, how crazy it's getting and then, and how one, uh, person who lived there, uh, the subject of the film, Charlotte Mickey, who does happen to be a, uh, an industry sales agent for film, uh, champion like got her uh, you know her co-residents up together to to fight and turn into activists to turn to make sure that uh the apartment building they live in uh, live in spadina gardens which was built in 1904 is preserved and maintained and the character is not uh left you know stripped away from it but also you know that these people can stay in their homes which at the end of the day is such is really such an important thing but uh, like I said, I got to talk with the always, uh, always enjoyable Jamie Kastner about uh, about the film and just so on and, and and very much more, man. Jamie is a good listen, and uh, this is a good film. So, like I said, if you are in Canada, go to tvo.org, check it out. It is called Charlotte's Castle. Uh, watch it anytime you like. But also, uh, first check out our talk with Jamie because between you and me, it's a darn good one. No, I mean, just to obviously to kick this off officially, I mean, just thank you so much for the time today. I mean, congrats on the movie, man. It's another great one. Oh, thanks very much, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I mean, I guess my first question is because 
like walk me through the origin of not just finding the building and wanting to tell the story, but I mean, even using Charlotte as your linchpin. I mean, I suspect I already know the story because I even knew who Charlotte's name was just as I was sort of seeing it. Like I knew, I know this person, but like walk me through the origin of, of, I guess, starting down this road. Well, I mean, yes, Charlotte is, Charlotte is a, uh, something of a legend in the, in the art film world. And uh, our paths had crossed before, certainly. So I uh, um, I actually came to it through a random, fairly random sequence of events. I uh, came to this story. I, you know, was a renter for many years. And uh, now I own a, a property uh, infinitely more modest and ugly than, uh, uh, than the one Charlotte lives in. Um, but which nevertheless, a couple of years ago, it's in the East End and was was up for for heritage designation. And um, frankly, I couldn't really understand why, given that it's just an ugly little building. But the the uh, um, but it got me interested in the process of heritage designation. And I discovered at the same time that my place was up for designation. So was a much more grand, interesting sounding building called Spadina Gardens at uh, Spadina, just north of Bloor, which, as I kind of poked around and dug into it more, discovered that it it was it's actually this kind of emblem of all sorts of things in Toronto cultural history. Um, aside from being a, a, a remarkable building, you know, architecturally, it's the oldest rental building in the city, and it has uh, always attracted a unique kind of a creative spirited at least uh uh tenant and uh the longest standing whom of uh uh at this point turns out to be you know the legendary uh uh art film distributor charlotte mickey <laughs> now i mean something i think i really appreciated about this is that like you just alluded to a little bit you allowed us to understand sort of how these buildings can have personality based on their tenants and the people who've lived there and the communities and all that sort of thing, but also still sort of maintaining the realities of renovation and, and what's going on in the city and then in so many other cities, not only just with heritage buildings, but I mean, with so many other kind of buildings. And I mean, it can be kind of a, a scary road to go down. Was there a point during production where you knew you had to tell both stories because I mean, I could have imagined you've done sort of a, a full film just about the history of the building and the people who live there. Well, uh, absolutely. There were many stories in this one and it was, it was challenging to figure out as it always is to some degree, but, but to figure out uh, what, what to focus on and how to weave the material together into a semi-cohesive uh, hopefully film. And um you know, there is always an improvisational nature to this, uh, to this kind of documentary making, and you're drawn in by the characters, by the building. And indeed, as you said, you could have you could have just focused on that. I mean, initially, I was interested in the heritage process, then I became fascinated by this building. And then once I learned more about, uh, about what the tenants had gone through, I realized that it was emblematic, uh, it was representative of um of a, a part of the housing crisis that is that is going on in this in this city, and and yet you know m- my company has actually been involved in producing. We have co-produced another film on the housing crisis a couple of years ago, a film called Push, uh, which was directed by a Swedish filmmaker, 
but um, that took a kind of helicopter view of mm -hmm. the uh, of the the global housing crisis and the situation in a bunch of different cities across the world, and um, so I was obviously not looking to repeat that, but but sort of inevitably telling the story of the oldest rental building in in the city right now. Uh, you, it turns out they're under siege. It turns out the building just sold. It turns out that that there is almost a a, a kind of activist motivation uh, behind, <clears throat> to some degree, behind the uh, push for heritage status. So all of that, you know, struck me as as rich uh, uh, story material. No, for sure. And I mean, I'm glad you brought up push as well because obviously that's also a really an excellent film. But I remember watching that movie and being quite frankly, terrified. This film actually gave me a little bit of hope and a little bit of sort of joy to the process because, I mean, at least in understanding not just the heritage process, but just sort of the ability for the tenants to, to push back. And I mean, I'm kind of curious, as you sort of initially pitched people, like were, were, were people hesitant? Because I mean, again, with the whole renovation story and everything that's happened, there like pushback happens between tenants and landlords. And I can imagine it wasn't necessarily an easy sell for you to get people on camera to talk about this. Absolutely not. It was it was uh, definitely challenging to get people to to talk on camera about what was going on. And uh, uh you know the the and understandably because they're they're putting their their necks on the line and they uh, they are kind of at the mercy of of a, a landlord who is at that point largely unknown to them and um, yeah so there was there was a lot of trepidation uh, um, I would say on on, on both sides uh, you know I, I approach these things journalistically and, of course, and yeah. you know I I in that I always feel it's stronger uh, in these types of stories to get to get both sides uh, speaking and you know I'm 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 not an activist myself and I'm I, I want there are many uh, this isn't a cut and dry story and there are different shades to it I think yeah. there are different parts of the you know, everybody is kind of funny at one point or another, as as you know, I always somehow find a place for humor in my in my work, no matter how grave the subject. Um, and and I kind of like embracing all of those facets of a story and of the people of the people in it. But yes, people were 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 uh, reluctant to talk. Uh, I it was it was a sort of long uh, conversation with the landlord as well. Um, they weren't, didn't respond to my initial requests, you know, to talk about the heritage stuff in, in general terms, but, but warmed up once the, uh, the focus was going to be on, on their building. And that was actually for the most part, quite a, a congenial relationship, um, you know, and, and resulted in them saying what they said on camera. <laughs> exactly. Now, I mean, I've got to ask because it feels almost ironic that someone who's spent such an iconic career behind the scenes in the movie industry to ultimately end up being the star, quote unquote, of your film. Like, was there a moment when you knew that, OK, you know, you're like, damn, Charlotte, you've got to be the focus of this film because you're just so damn good in front of the camera? Well, it was it was I have crossed paths with <clears throat> Once I realized that Charlotte lived in this building, I was intrigued by, I mean, 
I did think, oh, great. You know, Charlotte is famously a character uh, uh, in the business. And though I don't think she she doesn't particularly seek self-promotion, although other journalists have noticed it, fashion journalists and other people over the years, she's she is so uh, eclectic. She has such eclectic taste and uh in in everything you know that that uh, that has been noticed but i don't think she seeks uh, uh the limelight particularly and so there was a fair bit of of uh, trepidation on her part i didn't know that she, you know the film ultimately is called charlotte's castle and i think she she is the head of the tenants association she is kind of the the uh, the glue and the uh, in the community there now and is the is was the driving force behind uh, uh, the heritage um, designation and application process. Uh, so, you know, that's that, but, but I didn't know at the outset that she would, that she would be the star per se. I saw it as more of an ensemble piece and a piece about the building. The building is really arguably the star too, you know. No, but I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. So the castle came before Charlotte. So it wasn't it wasn't Charlotte than the castle. It was the castle than Charlotte. Well, it's sort of chicken and egg. I yeah. mean, it's it's as you were as you were suggesting earlier. I I think that that again, not wanting to have just another identical drop in the bucket of the of the the uh, the endless and understandably endless discussion about the housing crisis. You know, I thought telling the story of one remarkable building and its remarkable inhabitants was kind of the concept going in as a way of getting at uh, uh, the culture, uh, the cultural soul of a city, which is a hard thing to pin down and a hard thing to capture in a documentary, I think. Uh, but, you know, it's it's the kind of it's a kind of Toronto that I was aware of growing up, uh, a kind of of uh, <clears throat> yeah people who are interested in a bunch of things other than making money primarily you for know sure. for sure uh, different creative pursuits different creative interests colorful characters and uh you know this was the the family and the milia i was lucky enough to grow up in and the the uh uh and it's something that you feel i on one hand i think it is having obs i've observed this now happening in different cities that i like london and new york and uh places i've visited and lived you know that that this phenomenon of these colorful cultural types uh makes a a neighborhood and ultimately a city hot and attractive and oh. then property values go up it's the very thing that drives that prices the ver those very people out of the city that they have helped make interesting, and and I think that was part of what I was trying to capture with this that that ironic cycle, which is not necessarily anybody's fault. I guess you could just call it you know progress, quote unquote. But it's uh, it's a real threat. You know, it's a it's a real loss. I think, and uh, no, and it's it's such a complex happen. issue too because. Yeah. Like you, like you, like you don't necessarily want to impede progress or impede, you know, technology or growth. But at the same time, these places and this culture and this community does add to the vibrancy of a city. And it's one of those things that it can so easily be stripped away. But at the same time, I'm also glad that while you know we want to support and preserve that, there was a tenant in this building who was like. Yeah, all that stuff's nice, but I don't want to be homeless either. Yeah. 
Well, I think that that there that was again. It was it wound up being such a rich uh, uh, subject. This building and and its its current and former inhabitants. There was a natural upstairs downstairs, literally quality to it. As another one of the former basement tenants put it, you know, we used to live in the joke that we lived in the dungeon below the castle. It's uh, uh, I think that it's important to have all those aspects of the of the conversation. And this not just be a thing about about you know an aesthetic loss. Uh, there's there is a real housing crisis going on in the city, and and beyond. And I think that that part of focusing on this more let's say genteel uh, group of people was a way to tell the story differently. And also, you know, even while some of their concerns, even relative to their own uh, less fortunate basement tenants. Uh, some of the upstairs folks' concerns may seem trifling at times, uh, and I don't think I shy away from showing that uh, either. But um, ultimately, you realize that these these people, the crisis is real for them too. Even the more the the better healed uh, folks in these remarkable twenty eight hundred square foot apartments are, if even they are feeling the pinch in a very serious way, which they are, you know, having decided over a, a, a over a, a successful lifetime that renting was a viable choice, um, then, uh, you know, then, then the game of high stakes musical chair, uh, musical chairs, real estate began here and everywhere, but especially in big cities like Toronto, uh, uh, you know, they're kind of screwed at, at an age when they don't have many options. And if even this class of people are suffering, I guess the part of the implicit, you know, message of the film, such as it is, is imagine what it's like for everybody further down the food chain. For sure. No, absolutely. Now, I mean, this is something I've always appreciated about your films is because while there's going to be a certain degree of through line in terms of theme and kind of the stuff that you tackle, you're also at the same time like squiggling outside the lines and going from 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 disco to air hijacking to art forgery to this. I'm curious for you when you're starting in on something like what is it that draws you in as a as a storyteller? Like is it is there one specific thing or is it just sort of the sort of the light bulb going off? This could work. Let me go investigate that further. Well, thank you. First of all, that's very nice of you to say and to have noted. Uh, uh, for better and worse, I am an outside the line squiggler. That's that's an apt <laughs> characterization of my lack of genre. Uh, uh, no, no, I, I take it as a compliment. Uh, thank you. The the uh, um, you know, it's a cross section. I guess I guess it's true that that over, you know, I've now been doing this for for a while. I have uh, I'm just putting putting the finishing touches on, I guess, uh, uh, my 10th, uh, you know, doc. Yeah. And uh, this what is this? The eighth. This is the eighth. So there's there's another couple coming uh, coming down the pipeline. And and, um, you know, you realize after you develop a certain craft is all I'm I'm trying to say, you know, happily you spend enough time doing something, you know, hopefully you develop uh, a craft. And I guess I started, you know, I started and it's still occasionally when I can, you know, do a bit of print journalism, I guess <clears throat> it's coming to, so you, you develop the skill of finding, of, of identifying ideas. I, and, and it's, it's hard to kind of analyze uh, after the fact, but what is, what is the cross section of things that it's a cross section of things that sort of, I have a, 
a sense that I could sink my teeth into that are kind of juicy, that are not obvious. And, you know, because I do do this for a living, unfortunately, I'm not one of those uh, uh, doc makers from a billionaire family, sadly, uh, uh, or happily. I uh, um, <clears throat> I have to make a living. Uh, uh, and I, you know, my I now work with my wife in the business. So so uh, uh, she, you know, which is partly, partially why I think we, things have gotten so so productive lately. Uh, I have a brilliant producer in in Laura. Um, so the the but anyway, yeah, it's some cross section of I think I think I don't like black and white stories. Generally, I'm more drawn to antiheroes to to uh, quirkier things and things that have some kind of political uh, undercurrent to them, but not necessarily in an obvious way. If I if I were to try to kind of characterize it or analyze it, I guess that's you know, I like culture. I was a music critic first. I, you know, I like music. I like art. I like all this stuff. So some, but, and, and I guess I feel, I feel um, compelled to make films that are entertaining first. I do still feel that is the the first responsibility of someone in my position. You've got to make it entertaining. Or well, that, and I mean, that's just it. I mean, you really did start making films when the, the definition of the documentary kind of changed because i mean we could think back 20 30 years ago people would think documentary and for the most part they would think boring talking heads and facts and facts and facts and facts right but there was that shift to make them entertaining and to make them engaging right and i mean the streaming boom obviously helped with that and just sort of the accessibility of it all how has the landscape of making documentaries changed from your perspective because it definitely feels like at least from an outsider's view that the rules that used to be there are kind of getting stripped away well it's uh, absolutely it's been there have been seismic shifts in the terrain in the time that i have you know the last two decades that i have been doing this um and for one thing, yes, as you as you're kind of suggesting, I think that the type of stuff I was doing was viewed as more of an of of an outlier of a more 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 oddball stuff compared to to the mainstream broadcast material. You know, my my very first film, which was uh, also for TVO called Free Trade is Killing My Mother, which uh, uh, I made with a, a friend, the late uh, Guy O'Sullivan. And we, it was a road movie at the Quebec City Summit of the Americas. It was called Free Trade is Killing My Mother. Did I just say that? And the, the, uh, we, it was about us going off to join the revolution in my parents' minivan. And, you know, we were making a road movie and we forgot to film exteriors of the car, of the van. <laughs> so, you know, we thought, well, shit, we can't, what are we going to do? And I came up with this concept to have a toy van on a map as the thing that you cut to and just like have a finger pushing this toy van. I love it. That was somehow, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I mean, that was so wacky at the time, like as a kind of solution to, to, you know, that I'm very proud of and that gave me great creative satisfaction that it worked. And then I expanded a thing called Van World. So we used the van, you know, we ultimately had a thing with the van going into a fence with tear gas and, you know, it became a whole like sideline for this, you know, TVO documentary. Um, but it was, I mean, people appreciated it. It was commissioned by Rudy Boutignol. I don't think it got into any festivals. 
but but you know whatever my my career such as it was has launched anyway sorry to answer your question i think that that i i think that the the needle has moved and stuff has become hipper i would say that that errol morris you know back then was viewed as an art house kind of mm. icon now he's definitely um, you know, a, a, an acknowledged master aesthetic god of documentary who has defined a whole look and style. You know, I always, I always liked particularly a thin blue line and his. You know, but there was a, a for a long time where where recreations were forbidden. Now you see a kind of stylish cinematic recreation everywhere. So I think the genre has gotten hipper. I think as there was the sense that it was big business for a while there. There was the, these crazy bidding frenzies over these things at, at Sundance and, and places like that. I sense that that's died down now. Um, it also has brought a lot more Americans, uh, many of whom perhaps of necessity are, are trust fund kids because there's no decent funding system in the States like there is in Canada. Yeah. And so it's there's I feel like there is this kind of lottery, this American lottery of documentary out there where you read about, you know, the big sales at the big festivals and the Oscars. And, you know, like the Academy has moved in in a big way in certain festivals that used to just be remote doc things like Amsterdam. Right. But I don't think that, you know, I, I am fortunate to have been established in the basically with the Canadian public funding system and public television at the base of what I do. I think that that, to my mind, still gives the greatest creative freedom in my experience, uh, uh, you know, and and uh, long may it long may it prosper. It's on. I've had films on Netflix. Uh, Fakes is on is on Amazon. I mean, I think it's great that there are these other outlets there, but I I don't think that these. I don't think anybody could argue that the streamers have have sort of stepped in to fill the gap or fill the role that that in in this country anyway is is uh, uh, you know the seedbed of like our our funding and broadcast model for for creative work. So for sure, you know they have they have their own restrictions, their own conventions, and and you know Netflix now you're in the the big high stakes film business where where it's 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 full of whims it's full of you know everybody trying to read the market and decide what's hot what's not this week now crime but not too crime but is it too much violent crime or is it not violent enough can you make you know i mean these things are are i gather you know fed out from these from these services to agents regularly saying this is what we're looking for so i think it's it's their pros and cons to this brave new world you know yeah no you're right i mean especially when it comes to true crime it almost has it almost has its own sort of sub uh sub farming out market in and of itself to to really to output so many of those like it, like the, the rate that they're getting output at is kind of frightening it's wild i mean when when i did skyjacker's tale in 2016 there was not i remember the the distributor the american distributor asking me uh if uh um you know could we put a, should we put a true crime documentary on the poster like this was not a phrase uh, at the time, or, or was just starting to be a phrase. It's hard to imagine such a time now. Right. It's yeah. So inundated with it. And I just came across that story, as you may recall, through my car mechanic. But, you know, and I thought this is a hell of a story. And and but but yes, it's it's become it's become such a such a machine now. It's it's wild. Just as a side note, did you get to see the Errol Morris at TIFF? 
I did. I did. Oh, loved it. I yeah. I I mean, he is a master. He was in top form. I love John Le Carre as well. And uh, uh, so yeah. No, I mean, it, it, and visually, you know, nobody can touch him. I mean, oh, he's, totally. He's, totally. He's built this whole language. Also, I don't know if you were there for the premiere, but the um, at the Q and A, <laughs> they talking the producers, Le Carre Sons, are the producers. You know that company, yeah. Ink Factory, and they they talked about the meeting of the two Titans for this interview and uh, with a crew of 80 people there for the interview, a crew of I wish 80 I, oh man, I had to go to the P&I for that. Oh no. No, I, I, I shelled out on top of my pass. I just wanted to see, to see the, the, the Q and a for that one, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I really like that film. Yeah. Excellent. Now, I mean, just to put a bow on this, and I mean, I can imagine this is a problem, not just for you, but I mean, documentary filmmakers in general, because while Charlotte's Castle does have a certain degree of resolution to it, you're never going to get the entire resolution. And I mean, and the story is still evolving. How do you as a filmmaker and a storyteller go, I've got enough, I've got to walk away now? Well, I think it is, uh, uh, you're kind of, asking yourselves these questions, obviously, as you go along. And there's obviously a fair amount of panic throughout yeah. the process where you say many times, not only through production, but through editing. And, and sometimes like this was filmed over, over a period of a few years and over COVID and all sorts of challenges. <laughs> you're asking yourself, do I have a film here? Do I have a film? You're asking the editor, do I have a film here? You know, what are we going to do? How are we going to solve this? Should we make this about many buildings? You know, and, and that's the beauty of the form. I mean, I, unlike uh, uh, scripted, I, I from all I've gathered, not having made one yet, but the uh, um, part of the, you know, you can go out and move to plan B if plan A isn't working in the right. end. You, you, you know, if you can have the money and you if you can raise the money to do it, you can do it or, you know, beg, steal and borrow or something. Uh, um, but in this case, I thought, you know, I, I knew there need I knew there were great characters in a great building, but I knew it needed a story arc. And I and I guess I decided at a certain point that it would be this this process of, of heritage designation that would be the kind of would be the kind of end point. Uh, and in truth, you know, this is all happening. It's laid out in a certain way in the film, you know, as as a kind of cohesive story, you know, a, and a chronological story. But, you know, of course, that isn't necessarily the way it happens while you're shooting. Of so course, yeah. Kind of like looking at these these things that you've got and kind of going, could it, how could it, what could it, you know, I mean, it's like deciding when do you stop shooting how many tenants do I, it was a challenge to get the tenants to participate, but then, then, you know, how much is enough? How much is too much? You're, you're kind of just kind of gauging, you're trying to gauge what'll be interesting. What'll, what'll make a good story. What'll, well, do we have a cross section of, of this kind of thing? You don't want it to be repetitive. You want to show the range, you know, the upstairs, downstairs. I have, I have, you're, you're kind of like putting ideas on a board about, these themes, these characters, how are, you know, you're kind of constantly trying to map things out on, you know, whiteboards or corkboards or boards of some kind or the computer. Uh, um, but I guess, I guess somewhere along that line, I had a sense. And as I say, you do it for a while, I guess you, you get better at guessing correctly what will work and what won't. Sure. And so I just had a sense that this heritage thing would give you an, an arc 
of a, a certain arc. It's not a complete uh, happy ending of, you know, as, as there isn't in life, you know, this is where we we leave off this tale. But you also see the trajectory, you know, if you think about it much like a drama of these of these protagonists going from, you know, a disparate, scared group of people into act becoming activists who actually accomplish something fairly significant. Now, I mean, last question, was Charlotte the sales agent on her own movie? <laughs> no. Uh, uh, in fact, we have... We have a uh, 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 a French uh, a French company has taken it. A French company called uh, Reservoir Docks. So oh, fantastic! Also heartening uh, because it shows that it's not just or heartening or disheartening. I heartening for the film, disheartening for the state of the world because it shows it's not just a Toronto story. No, but it is a universal story. But it, it's again, you've made it with seriousness, but also with some some light and some heart as well. And I mean, Jamie, it's another great piece of work. But honestly, as always, thank you for the time today, brother. Keep up the good work, man. And just again, thanks for the time, man. It's always appreciated. We get to oh, talk. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. You're you're such a such an intelligent interviewer. It's it's a pleasure. Well, thanks. I do my best, but thanks again, man. Talk to you soon. Okay, take care. And don't forget to, to visit our friends over at Bay Street Video for all your DVD, Blu-ray rental, or purchasing needs this summer, as they are still open for curbside and some mailing delivery as well. Over at 1172 Bay Street, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, you can give them a call at 416-964-9088. That's 416-964-9088. Or send them an email at baystreetvideoto at gmail.com for any of your DVD and... And Blu-ray needs.